Yeah. The Bar Podcast. Uh, Biblical uh, Reform, let's uh, go. Uh, yeah. Welcome to the bar. Come on and pull up a seat. And open up your Bible. What a wonderful feast. The living bread. And we're discussing what it means for the streets, the inner cities, and the burbs, and every person we meet. That's where we challenge worldviews that we hear from world news. In light of the scripture, yo, we are here to serve you. We're your source for resources to help you on your way as you battle mean forces. Yo, this is for the people who can see the importance of sound theology and the scripture that support it. Yeah, this is for the truth lovers, biblically reforming, preaching Christ to the nations. Yeah. The nations. Welcome to the modern reformation. Yeah. Welcome everybody to the bar. It's your guest host, David Knight from Exposit the Word, standing in for Dwayne. Different hosts, same show, and same top top guests so let's get to it because i am super excited to be coming through your speakers your earbuds wherever you are listening to the bar and as always we are grateful that you are listening and we love to start off the show by thanking you the listeners for tuning in and supporting the show and just like we do every tuesday we bring you another awesome guest and this one is no different Hello and welcome, Dr. Al Mola. It's very good to be with you, David. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Dr. Mola, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Well, 60 seconds. Uh, I'm, I was born in Florida, uh, raised in a Christian home, came to faith in Christ, uh, uh, was called into ministry, uh, went to a college at uh, Sanford University in Birmingham, came to Southern Seminary, uh, went through the doctoral program, and uh, I was elected president here in 1993. My wife and I have been married for 40 years. We have two children and three grandchildren. Uh, I think I came in under the under the line there. <laughs> you did. You packed a lot in there, to be fair, as well. So, so take us back to the beginning. How and when did you become a Christian? You know, I was a nine-year-old. I was raised in a Christian home, wonderful, uh, convictional Christian parents. And uh, I was raised around Christians my entire life. Uh, but that didn't make me a Christian. It certainly explained how I heard the gospel and saw the gospel, uh, you know, evident. And uh, it was in a, it was in a, a, a small church, not my own church, in what was called uh, Vacation Bible School, that uh, I heard the gospel preached in such a way that all of a sudden it, it just really reached my heart, grabbed my heart, and uh, I, I came under conviction that I am a sinner and desperately in need of a savior. And the Father made provision in Christ for my salvation. I certainly was no theologian, but uh, I was a sinner who grasped upon Christ. And uh, all the typical adolescent things of trying to, you know, think these things through in a different way and own it. And uh, the Lord was very gracious to me in that process. And uh, so I, uh, I, I would count myself a Christian for, uh, you know, more than half a century now. Well, that's not exactly true. I, yeah, yeah, it is true. Excuse me. <laughs> Better do the math. Uh, it is well over a uh, half century now. Yeah, wonderful. At the age of 33, you've already touched on this, you became the youngest president in the 164-year history of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. What do you remember about that time? Oh, my goodness. Well, I remember just about everything about that time, as a matter of fact, because it was at a time of great controversy as well. And so the entire world was watching, it seemed, a 33-year-old uh, take the reins of the seminary. And, and look, I was elected to bring about massive change. And uh, by God's grace, we brought about that massive change. But that means the world's divided between those who 
celebrate that change and those who uh, who, who uh, condemn that change. So we were in a, a context of tremendous controversy, and it stayed that way for a number of years. Thankfully, you know, the, the, I'd say the last twenty years has been have been very different after the reset. But the reset itself was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you're passionate about is leadership. And we're here today to talk about your newly revised edition of the excellent book, The Conviction to Lead. Tell us about it and why you felt the need to release this new edition. Well, first of all, why did I write the book? Uh, I, I asked myself that question. I, I said at one point, you know, the, that I wasn't going to write a book on leadership because there are so many books out there. And yet I had so many people come to me and say, well, you know, tell me about how you see leadership in this dimension or another. And I realized nobody's really talking about this. So I wanted to present a, a Christian understanding of leadership that, quite frankly, might have a readership even beyond Christians, just, you know, I, I, where I, I'm explicit about my Christian conviction. And uh, but I, I've been pleased. There have been so many outside uh, in the secular world who've read the book and uh, have have appreciated it. And uh, I hope that a witness to Christ is very evident in it as well. But, you know, the, the idea of leadership as something that is rooted in conviction, I think, is deeply Christian. I think I think you look at the apostles, you look at uh, Christ teaching the apostles, you look at the Old Testament, all the leadership models that are honored in Scripture are convictional leadership. And that's the one thing that seemed to be absent from the secular equation. And as a matter of fact, I think many leaders you know, in the secular context, and and some, unfortunately, in the Christian context, are afraid of conviction, or or they don't know how to translate conviction into uh, policies, into uh, hiring, into supervision, into leadership, how to motivate uh, God's people to effective action. So, you know, the the basic definition of leadership I work with is that it is uh, God using uh, a human being uh, to uh, motivate uh, not only in heart, but also in mind, at the deepest level of conviction and passion, God's people to be faithful and to do faithful things. And uh, it's exciting to see that happen. Yeah, yeah. Was you surprised by how much people seem to love the first edition? You know, I was. And uh, and uh, it was by, uh, you know, really the, the demand uh, of uh, the readers of the book that I came up with a second edition. And, you know, uh, David, that second edition really was timely because you just take the one issue of uh, my chapter on the leader and uh, digital media. I mean, my goodness. Uh, When I wrote the first edition of the book, by the way, there was a lot of techno optimism about leaders using digital means and, you know, Twitter X, whatever you want to call it now. And uh, social media, Uh, you know, between that point and now, you know, we have the development of the leader facing the toxicity of social media. So I, I really needed to address that. And then, you yeah. know, in, in since the book was written, there have been some massive uh, earth-shaking global leadership issues that have arisen. So I thought, you know, we need to talk about that as well. You know, the most graphic of those is COVID-19. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. How, how, how did we learn about leadership in the context of having to lead in a global pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, so true. So true. So why is conviction important to leadership? What's its source and how can somebody grow in it? Yeah, you know, I'm speaking here to Christians and I I think other people have some convictions, but Christians base our entire life, all of our hope on a conviction, uh, a conviction of things unseen, uh, the assurance of things hoped for, as the scripture says. And, uh, you know, conviction is belief 
that uh, isn't just something that we possess. You know, we, we we have all kinds of beliefs. A conviction is something that holds us. We're possessed by it. And I think that's a good definition of the gospel. It's not just something we believe. It's it's something that has grasped us. It uh, it has transformed us. Uh, we can no longer think the way we used to think. We no longer hope the way we used to hope. And that means we can't lead the way we used to lead. Um, and it means we have to lean into the full wealth of biblical conviction, you know, beginning with the fact that we're when we're dealing with human beings, we're not dealing with, uh, you know, material objects. We're dealing with individuals, human beings made in the image of God, every single one of them an image bearer. That certainly transforms leadership. But conviction transforms leadership, I guess, where the water hits the wheel in uh, motivating by conviction to do what by conviction we know to be the right things, whether that's a pastor leading a church, it's a a, a Christian in the business world, a politician in the world of government. Um, Christians have to operate in all those arenas by conviction, or quite frankly, we're not being faithful. Yeah, that's right. What's the difference between management and leadership? Yeah, you know, I think sometimes uh, an artificial distinction can be made between them because, you know, there are people who would like to think that leadership does not include management, and that management does not include leadership, but but quite frankly, that that they're not two completely separate categories. Right. Uh, yeah. At some point, if a leader is effective, the leader has to know a good deal about managing affairs. And uh, a manager, unless you know it's some unusual situation where the manager is working alone, has got to have some yeah. leadership ability as well. But you know, I, I think the distinction, nonetheless, is real. And I would say that leadership is about understanding the right goal. And uh, defining, you know, the right purpose. Uh, management is about organization to get there. And so an organization needs both. A government needs both. You know, a, a school needs both. Uh, frankly, a family needs both. But uh, certainly the, the, you know, the church needs both. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. What's more important in leadership, skill or character? Well, let's put it this way. Um you have to have both, but if you don't have character, the skill can turn and not only ineffective and, and in a wrong direction, it can turn demonic. I mean, you know, as we look at history and the, the examples of leadership, some of them are absolutely catastrophically evil. And they were leaders of enormous ability. So skill cannot be on itself uh, alone uh, the criterion for leadership. It is a sine qua non. I mean, you can't lead without skill. And by the way, I think some of that is innate. Uh, you know, just yeah. by God's gift. I think some of it is is developed. And I think you see that in the scripture because, you know, you have the Apostle Paul uh, telling Timothy, you know, to to fan the flame, uh, you know. And, and so I do think we we, we learn to uh, to hone those skills and to develop those skills. The leader's always growing in that sense. But, um, you know, character is right at the heart of it. And, and yeah. you know, I, I think when you look at the Old Testament, um, you know, uh, it's impossible to separate character. It's impossible to decenter character. You know, David uh, was a sinner, but he was a man after God's own heart. Um, you look at Peter, he's corrected by Paul. Uh, you look at Paul, you know, who speaks of himself as, uh, as the least of all the apostles. Yeah. When we talk about character, it doesn't mean that we are without sin. It does mean that redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, we seek in every way to demonstrate the character of a Christian, the uh, the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, the the conformity to the image of Christ. I think without that, 
the leader's going to head in a very different direction and frankly, it's going to hurt people. Yeah. 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 How important is it for a leader to be able to communicate well? I think it's essential. I, I really do. I think it is essential. Now, you know, there are some unusual circumstances in Scripture, like uh, Moses leading with uh, Aaron sometimes being his his mouthpiece. But, you know, that by itself is a singularity. Um, yeah. The leader has to communicate because enormous amount, uh, you know, I, I'd say an enormous percentage of, of leadership is actually doing just that. It's communicating. You know, and I think particularly now uh, where uh, in the advent of the modern age with uh, modern communication, media, and all the rest, uh, much of the leadership that exists in this world is mediated through communication. So yeah. I think it's at the very heart of being a leader. And, you know, I think it's at the very heart of being a father or a parent or a mother in the home. It's at the very heart of being a teacher in a classroom. It's at the very heart of especially being the preacher. Uh, for God's people. Um, it turns out that God, having made us in his image, has made us creatures who need to be continuously talked to. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of that communication, what about when you couple it with humility? You know, should a leader be somebody that when they make a mistake, that they communicate that to their people? Or is a leader better off trying to hide that and and, and have this facade that they don't make these mistakes? Yeah, I, I don't know how that works, frankly. Uh, you know, ha- having uh, raised children, I don't know how that works with children. Uh, uh, children are quite adept at seeing the mistakes, uh, you know, made by their parents. And by the way, I think this is a particular uh, uh, asset for fathers, for Christian fathers. I think our kids need to see us make mistakes and need to see us admit those mistakes and learn from those mistakes. I, th- I think that's a part of a Christian father's influence with his children, even to let his children enjoy watching him make the mistake and correct the mistake. Uh, It's just a good model, you know, in in order to say, you know, let's be very clear. Uh, God has put me here for a purpose, but, uh, but I am, uh, I am a clay pot. I'm also the clay pot who's your father and you will respect and obey me, but you're, you're, uh, you're respecting and obeying a clay pot. So uh, let's be all, let's be honest about that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Leaders come with all sorts of personalities, and some will find it easier than others to display passion. How important is it that a leader is passionate, regardless of how easy they find it to be so? You know, I think it's really essential, and and because I think passion does come out in different ways. You know, uh, you can see somebody who's passionate, uh, you know, like a football coach in the United States or, you know, an athletic coach, uh, uh, a a club coach. Uh, You can see that. Well, there's a lot of passion. Sometimes that's not a beautiful passion, by the way. Um, but you, you do see it in passion and, you know, that, 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 that's a part of the fun of sport. Um, but you know, when I'm looking for passion, I'm looking for convictional passion. So, you know, I think one of the most interesting examples to me, and, uh, th- this was an example from which I, I, and from whom I learned a very great deal. And that was Martin Lloyd Jones at Westminster Chapel in London, because, you know, he's Welsh, uh, you know, and he's pastor of this, uh, you know, incredibly prestigious and influential church in London. And, uh, you know, he, I, there aren't many pictures of the doctor smiling. Um, but in the pulpit, his passion just, just flows over. Part of that, I think, is his, his, his tradition in Wales. Uh, there's this incredible, you know, fervor uh, among the Welsh preachers. And, uh, and it was evident in the Welsh revival. And, uh, you know, I just think, you know, okay, well, there's an example of passion. And, you know, a lot of young seminary students, when I have them watch a Lloyd-Jones sermon on video, 
they uh, it takes them a minute to catch on, and then they realize how passionate he is. And uh, you know, sometimes to an American, you can look angry, uh, but then you catch on. You go, he's not angry. He's just he's just really passionate. And uh, I, I I think it, it it really is something you could pass from one heart to another. I I, I think uh, Kierkegaard, the philosopher, sometimes referred to as the melancholy Dane, and I'm not citing him as a theological authority here, but. You know, he described passion as that one thing uh, that can only be expressed from one heart to another. And I think he's exactly right about that. I think it's that one thing that can only be shared from one heart to another. So you can share information from a mind to another mind, but passion can only be shared from one heart to another. And the leader yeah. is only leading if there is the transference of that passion. Yeah, That can yeah, look so differently. There are there, There is cold passion and there's warm, there's hot passion. Uh, and, and I think God uses all of those. And by cold, I don't mean unfriendly. I just mean, you know, they're just people you just realize it takes you a while to figure out how happy he is and joyful he is. But once you figure that out, you understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. You've just touched on Lloyd Jones. And I've heard you say before that leaders are made by other leaders. Which leaders have most impacted your life and how have they done so? You know, uh, I, I would say that as a boy, uh, I had, very close leaders to me and then very far leaders from me from whom I learned a very great deal. And so very close, I had a Christian father that that's important. And, uh, and he was a leader in his own sphere. He was a leader in the church, not, not, he was, he, he was a, a manager of a grocery store. He was not a pastor, but he was a very involved Christian layman, very involved. And so I saw him in leadership. And so I, I learned from him. Uh, I saw all kinds of men, especially around me who were involved in leadership uh, you know, whether it was uh, my grandfathers, both of whom, you know, had uh, had had what I guess is easily described as a farm. Uh, I am from Florida. So one of them, it was orange groves. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, they have people who work for them. And I'm just watching, you know, how does, how, how does that work? And, and they have a common endeavor. You know, you got to get these oranges picked in time or they're, they're not going to be useful. So how, how, how do you get that done? Uh, I saw a pastor a godly pastor of, of the local church that my family attended. And uh, I saw his model of leadership by preaching. And, and again, I'm a little boy, so I don't know how to articulate that, but I'm seeing that. But then far from me, I had examples of leadership. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you, if you visit my library, uh, you'll notice I have three differently situated oil portraits of uh, Winston Churchill. And it's because as a very young boy, I, uh, I it was a National Geographic magazine uh, commemorating Winston Churchill and his funeral. And as a young boy, say, you know, nine, ten years old, I read that, and, and an American boy. And I read that, and all of a sudden I realized, okay, here's a man who was standing between England and Hitler, who was motivating uh, the, the, the British people. One of the lowest moments of, of world history, and 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 frankly, when the cards seem to be stacked against uh, Britain and for Germany, and and then you know just just kind of seeing you know I, I love the British uh, phrase a man in full, and uh, you know Churchill was a man in full. So if, if you are reading about him, even as a boy, you read about you know his his speeches, you you catch some of his humor in the midst of everything. You see so many photographs of him, and he he's resolute 
you know, the, mo- the most famous, perhaps physical picture of resoluteness in the 20th century. But there are also pictures of him with a, with a radiant smile. And uh, sometimes, you know, the cigar sticking from his lips and uh, the V sign on his fingers. Uh, and you realize, OK, this is a, this is a man who mattered in history. I want to learn from this. And and so, you know, I, as I say, if you get to know me, you know, all of the interests I had as a 10 year old boy uh, continue all of them right down to the toy trucks. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Do you think you can learn as much from bad examples of leadership as you can from good? I don't know that you can lose, you can learn as much, but you you learn things that are absolutely necessary and can only be learned by bad examples. And that's what you know reminds me that even as a little boy, and I keep going back to that, you know, I was amazed at how honest the Bible was about very bad men. Yeah, right. bad women too, but in particular, bad men in leadership. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I can still remember uh, thinking as just as a boy, you know, there weren't many good kings of Israel. Not as recorded in scripture, there there are a lot of bad kings and kings whose you know whose faults are massive. Uh, you know, there are very few Davids, and of course, David's an honestly depicted picture. There are very few Josiahs. Uh, there are a lot of Ahabs, uh, you know, and uh, and and similar. And I think that really helps. I think that really helps to understand that even in the Bible, God's people learn by learning from what bad examples show us. But, you know, that means that conviction's necessary because it's conviction that uh, draws the the real distinction uh, between a Josiah and uh, an Ahab. Yeah, so true. So true. Dr. Mona, you yourself have an incredible workload and face deadlines each day with the publishing of a briefing and everything else that you do. What advice do you have for busy leaders that struggle to carve out a healthy work-life balance? I'm going to be really honest. I don't claim to have any such thing. Uh, and and I, I, I want to say that I hope in, in a, the life stewardship, it, it evens out in some way. And so what, what I want to say is that if you do have a job like I have, uh, it's a very big institution. We've got, you know, almost 7,000 students. We, I mean, tens of millions of dollars at stake every day. Um, yeah. As students to take care of, faculty uh, to uh, to take care of and to lead. And, and then I do the briefing five days a week. And yeah, that's just got to be done. Uh, and that's an enormous, uh, you know, ton of bricks, as we Americans say, you know, on me every single day. I, uh, I'm i also, you know, editor of a major opinion section for, uh, you know, Christian magazine, World Magazine. I, and, and I'm speaking all the time. I do thinking in public. And, and I have to travel a lot. Travel is the hardest thing for me, by the way. And so I will tell you that what I say to you leaders, and especially to young leaders, and and I, I'll speak specifically to young men uh, often who are engaged in, I mean, they're, they're husbands, they're fathers, they have young children, they're trying to figure these things out. I say, look, things are are have to be put in a perspective of a larger picture than one hour, mm-hmm. uh, than one day, than one week, than one month, even one year. And so I think over a lifetime, uh, in a biblical sense, we need to plot our stewardship so that, I mean, when we have young children, I, when I, when we had young children in the home, I didn't write the way I wrote later. My first book, yeah. I've written many, but my first book, I was thinking about it. I was, I was plotting them, mm-hmm. but my first book didn't come out uh, until my uh, youngest child was in high school. In other words, while, yeah. while you're tying shoes and, uh, you, you know, holding hands to walk across the street, you're not writing books. 
and you need yeah. to be holding those hands. You need to be on the playground with your kids. Um, that, that, that's not wasted time. That's what God's called you to do. That's the first priority. And, uh, and the other thing is, is that, look, I, I lead an academic institution. So we live semester by semester. So, you know, we've got 14 week blocks, two of them a year in which quite frankly, I'm behind all the time. Yeah. All I can hope to do is end up in the right place by graduation day at the end of the semester. And I'm just being honest. Uh, you know, uh, this conversation took place considerably late because of an unavoidable meeting that I could not get out of involving people from all over the United States. And so that's just the way life is lived. Yeah. So I say, look, time management is way overblown, generally done by people who aren't doing anything but talking about time management. And so I will simply say, if you're going to go around the world talking about time management, you can manage your time. If you're managing anything or leading anything, that 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 is very difficult. You know, David, good question. I, I think you need advisors, close counselors to help uh, see this. I'm accountable to a board of trustees, the officers of that board of trustees. And I've been in this job for 30 plus years now. Yeah. And uh, I, I really have learned that those uh, officers really helped me. So about 20 years ago, they told me intervention. They simply told me when I was doing, at that point, a live radio program every day, uh, Monday through Friday, they said, you're not going to do that in July. They didn't say, we'd like to talk to you about cutting back in July. They said, you're going to spend time with your family in July. You know, some provisions got to be made. If somebody else has to do that program for a month, you know, you're going to take that time off. I thought that was a radical thing. Uh, However, it's one of the greatest acts uh, that was ever given to me. Uh, that yeah. board was absolutely right. And uh, my family, in, in, and now not only children, but grandchildren, and my wife, we can plan, okay, we can, w- w- yeah. w- we're, we'll get to July. And we have, you know, that month together, uh, where I'm not doing so many of the things I would do. I, d- I don't have the daily pressure of the briefing. And uh, we actually retreat to a house uh, on a lake uh, in rural Kentucky, where we're surrounded by, you know, cattle and deer. Uh, And that's very important. It's restorative. And uh, my wife and I have learned, you know, sometimes we just have to take time, you know, here it is a block here, a block there. And, uh, but we, look, she's as committed to this as I am. And she understands that there's a sense in which so long as we're in this job, you know, people don't arrange uh, crises uh, on a schedule. They happen. Uh, and and leading an institution or a, a major congregation, a, a, any congregation's major, uh, or even being a parent, I can say if you want to understand the travail of leadership, you know, and you want to talk about time management, ask a mom with a baby what time management looks like. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. let's be honest. It takes an insane amount of time commitment. Now, if if the mother's spending that same kind of a commitment and attention when the child's seventeen, you do have a problem. And, and so, you know, how many hobbies? do the does a does a mother of you know two preschoolers have well she's yeah. got two hobbies right now god bless her such is the kingdom uh but in another time and season of life it can be different i hope i, I hope I'm, I'm not talking too much and and that's helpful, oh, that's really I, helpful. I simply want to say that really i helpful. think most yeah. secular time management people are lying to you so i'll stop there yeah yeah thank you really helpful what advice would you have for christian leaders having to hold to their convictions in a secular workplace Oh, that's an increasingly difficult terrain, and I want to be honest about that. Uh, 
And I think this is where the local church is so very important. I think central to the purposes of God uh, for the discipleship of believers is the local church. I think we need the advice of many Christian friends around us who can speak into our lives. They know us. They know the context. Uh, A Christian uh, attorney, uh, a Christian barrister, a Christian, you know, physician, uh, a a Christian nurse, uh, a Christian in the military, a Christian, you know, working for a major corporation in the city of London, uh, just about anyone anywhere is on the front lines these days of some very difficult worldview collisions. And, you know, I think we all know up front there's some things we can't do. So, you know, in the early church, uh, Christian wisdom came down to the fact that, for example, a uh, a Christian could serve as a soldier in Caesar's army, but a Christian could not bend the knee and confess that Caesar is Lord. And so, you know, those are two questions, and both of them are important questions. And and the early church, you know, settled the uh, question, you can serve in Caesar's army, that can be honorable, um, but you cannot worship Caesar. That is idolatry. And at what point does Caesar say, well, if you're in my army, then you you worship me? Well, at that point, you know, Christians face the reality, a door's just been closed for us. And quite frankly, it can come with devastating consequences. And uh, the Christian church, by the way, especially, and I'm speaking to you, let's say in the English-speaking world, uh, in the world shaped by uh, European and North American uh, uh, civilization, uh, Christians are in the new posture of realizing that uh, in our generation, there are going to be many of our own young people who are not going to be able to have some of the jobs that, that we hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some of the professions, and right now, for instance, you know, in Canada, uh, there's some very hard cases uh, having to do with, say, medical doctors uh, being told, you know, if you will not perform this procedure, then you're not going to have a medical license. Uh, that, that's that that's the jaw uh, set of jaws we see, uh, I, I think, coming for us. And, and, you know, I think this is where we rightfully, by the way, fight back with everything that's available to us in our legal and and, and you know, influential uh, arsenal. But, you know, we're not in control of this. And we have to remember that Christ's people, and I go back to the to Christians in Rome in the first century, uh, Christ's people kind of were born into this problem. So evidently, uh, we're called to be faithful. Yeah, we can think of Daniel as well, can't we? Another similar Absolutely. example. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Dr. Moda, we're going to take a very quick break before returning to hear you answer the three signature bar questions. So, Dr. Mola, as you know, every single guest that comes onto the bar gets asked these three very important questions. Are you ready? Well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> what kind of music do you listen to? Oh, you know, I like all kinds of music. No, that's not true. Many kinds of music. Uh, I listen to, uh, uh, most importantly, uh, classical music. And and by that, I really love Baroque pieces. I uh, also like uh, Brahms. Uh, you know, I like, you know, some big majestic pieces. I have a particular interest in English polyphonic choir music uh, uh, in the Anglican tradition. And so I listen to that. But look, I also like uh, some uh, contemporary stuff, especially uh, uh, instrumental 
I wish I could play the piano. I love listening to people yeah. who do play the piano. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Next English bar question. What book or books are you currently reading? Wow. Well, for one thing, I'm doing a Thinking in Public in a couple of days with Yasha Munk, uh, a major political theorist. So I'm reading, uh, and in some cases rereading, uh, everything he's written to be ready for that. Uh, I, uh, I I love reading history. So I've uh, I, I've just read a, 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 a few histories. Most importantly, um, histories related to uh, uh, Britain and America in the 19th century, because I think that's when a lot of the change is taking place that I find really, really interesting. And I love reading biographies and uh, sometimes some interesting biographies. A recent one uh, on uh, John D. Rockefeller, uh, just to just to point out, you know, we, we can learn from all kinds of, uh, of stories. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And last signature bar question, what podcasts or sermons do you listen to, if any? Uh, honestly, I really don't get to listen to podcasts because I, I'm, I'm pretty busy, except when I'm in the car. When I'm in the car, uh, I, I listen to uh, uh, some podcasts, for instance, uh, from a Commentary Magazine, uh, also from uh, National Public Radio, uh, uh, Andrew Roberts, Lord Roberts. Uh, at the Hoover Institution, I and and, and by that I'm I'm saying, and in the case of Lord Roberts, I commend it. The others I listen to sometimes because I think I need to hear what someone else is saying. Uh, I need to hear a commentary is uh, published uh, by a a, a, a a Jewish tradition, and uh, I do find very interesting yeah. some of the things they talk about in contemporary issues. And uh, yeah. so that's just you asked me the world and everything in it. Uh, from World Magazine, I work uh, with with World with uh, editing World Opinions. Uh, there's just some, and and then of course, I don't listen to the briefing; I speak it, but I do hear myself say it. Yes, <laughs> very good. I, no well, I know how busy you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know how busy you are, Doctor Myler. So I'm so thankful for your time um, today. Before we let you go, do you have any closing thoughts? No, it has been a, a a privilege to be in this conversation with you. I just want to encourage Christians in particular in leadership, regardless of where God has put you in his sovereignty, uh, you're called to lead someone. I don't believe there's a single Christian who has no leadership calling. That calling might not be celebrated as leadership by the world that's looking for marching armies and Fortune 500 corporations and, uh, you know, prime ministers and presidents. But, uh, you know, on the ball field, someone's going to lead. I need a Christian to show up there in a, in, you know, in a scout troop, someone's going to lead. I need, we need Christians to show up there uh, in the operating room. Somebody's going to lead. We need Christians to show up there. So let me just encourage in the home. We need Christians to show up there in the local church. That's the main focus. The home and the, and the church are the main focuses of my concerns. If we're not faithful there, if we don't see Christian leaders leading with conviction there, none of the rest of it ultimately matters. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thanks again, Dr. Mida. We're going to make sure that we get a link to your book, um, as well as all of the things that you've been, you're into in your social media accounts as well. They're all going to be listed in the description below. Um, so make sure that you check those out. Dr. Mida, thanks again for your time. David, God bless you. Thankful for you. And to the bar listeners, thank you again for tuning in and make sure that you hit that subscribe button so that you can get the show every single Tuesday. And just like today, we have some top, top guests coming up that you do not want to miss out on. And remember to check out the bar podcast website where you can listen to Dwayne's huge archive of interviews, which will keep you nice and busy until next time to laugh for now. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.